Infirmary Media. In decades, the Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Who coach your popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios, where water does it better. It's the adult audio retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to another episode of Dueling Decades. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, in the 80s corner, fighting with horror movies of 1980. It's me! It's Judge John Cross! Yes, that's right. Normally I'm the judge. But tonight, I am fighting to win 1980s coming at you. Horror! And in the 90s corner... Hailing from parts unknown and dueling with horror movies of 1990. Hey, it's Dave Schultz from the uh, Selling Out Show, and um, I'm out to lose. Unlike John over there, who's all <laughs> gung ho on winning, my, my goal is to be as pitiful and terrible as humanly possible. I'm just I kidding. Like it. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And as always here on Dueling Decades, we need someone to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. Please rise for the man who does his own stunts and rolls his own blunts, Judge Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger, and we're getting ready for a spectacular episode. Hey, did you get my check? <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, although I didn't send you any money in the mail, uh, be assured that although I'm sitting down, I did rise for you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> TMI. <laughs> and keeping a watchful eye on this matchup is the dueling decades champion, Man Crush, who is here tonight and will be joining me on commentary. I'm here. Thank you. <laughs> like a fly on the wall. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories, movies, television, music news, and hot products. And for this week's duel, all categories will be horror-themed. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Now, duelers, remember... All work and no play makes duty a dull boy, so let's play some Dueling Decades. All right, let's go down to Judge Mike Ranger for the coin toss. All right, now this was a big decision. I didn't know what to go with. I thought to myself, maybe I'll go flip a laser disc, maybe maybe the Invisible Kid, because that's a fantastic film, or or maybe you know Hollywood Hot Tubs too, because who doesn't love that? But we're, we're doing a horror episode, so I figured, why not pull out a, a VHS cover of Monster Squad? Oh, and, yeah. And, nice. and we'll go with that. Who doesn't love Monster Squad? Wolfman's got nods. All right. Uh, who wants to uh, who wants to call it? I will let Dave call it. All right. All David, right. Um, I'm going to go for heads. I'm going to go for the front cover. All right. And the flip. Oh, I hear it. And it's heads. Woo. I finally won, so the only thing I'll probably win all night. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I get to pick the first category, huh? Where are we going? Let's, you know, because it's only worth one point. Let's try products. Hot products. Shall I go first on the, the product information here? Sure, go ahead. All right, I'm going to, because uh, I have a lot of notes here. I wrote War and Peace on everything, just to keep everybody uh, involved. <laughs> and I didn't, so by all means, <laughs> you go long and I'll go short, because I didn't get a chance to run it. My first product is Cracked Monster Party. Uh, Cracked, if you don't know, was a humor magazine made in Mad's Image, founded in 1958. They launched a number of monster-fueled spoof specials during the 1960s. And we fast forward to 1988, they began publishing Cracked Monster Party, which featured parodies of famous horror movies, television, and uh, horror icons. Now, the 1990 editions, there were actually three of them. There was number eight, January 1990, 
featured the Ugly Family, Frankenstein Monster, and Dracula. Also had a pinup of their mascot, Sylvester P. Smythe as Count Sylvester on the back cover. Number nine was in August. They featured Beetlejuice, Freddy, and there was more Sylvester P. Smythe, but this time it's Leatherface. And then finally, a fitting Halloween edition that was released in October 1990. Oh, you know what? For extra credit, by the way, because these were a staple of my youth. This might either get me a point or lose me a point. I have a copy, which is terrible for audio listeners, of Monster Party right here. Whoa, look at that. Nice. Is, is that 1990? No, no. And this is where it might oh. lose me a point. This is actually the last edition from 1989. But I'm close. Yeah. So they had three years. This is the third year of this. Well, no, they, they had multiple years. But in 1990, they released three issues. Gotcha. But they started in 88. So it's not the first year. It's no, they Something actually started doing okay. monster magazines in the 60s, many years oh, prior. Shit. But okay. they, they started Crack Monster Party in 1988. Did I read my notes too fast? You you, you did. I, oh, you got to slow down a little I, bit. I'm sorry. I'm so excited <laughs> about Crack Magazine. What can I say? He's on a little bit of the Crack Magazine. <laughs> I, I just wanted to whip out my magazine so badly. All right. And I will read this nice and slowly for you. Uh, in 1990, Splatterhouse, the video game, was released on TurboGrafx-16. Yeah. Now, Splatterhouse, as you may know, was a horror-themed beat-em-up inspired by American slasher films that was initially released by Namco as an arcade game. The story is based around the character of Rick, who dons an item called the Terror Mask to rescue his girlfriend, Jennifer, from a haunted mansion. The house actually proves to be sentient and sends a variety of creatures to attack Rick, preventing him, preventing him I'm sorry, from reaching its womb. Uh, Splatterhouse was released for home consoles, such as TurboGrafx-16, which also has some gnarly comic book ads. I might as well throw that in, too. And on PC, with a warning on the box, it read, The horrifying theme of this game may be inappropriate for young children and cowards. You know what's really cool about that pick, Dave? I, I actually had this game on TurboGrafx-16. Mm -hmm. The the guy Rick, I didn't even know if that was his name, by the way. But there you go. He was Jason Voorhees. Like they didn't even try to hide the fact that they were just ripping that off one hundred percent. Well, actually, they changed it in the original arcade version. His mask was uh, red and black, and then when they released it on the home ports, they made it white. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Did they ever get sued for that or no? No. Apparently oh, not. Wow. They actually just released a new version of it uh, on the Wii Virtual Console. Yeah, I actually I have that copy. It's uh, it's just oh, uh, it's just the port of the Turbo game. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. All right, decent picks. I would say they're. It's hard to find the hot products, right? Oh, wicked! Gotta, oh, jeez. <laughs> when you got to find a specific genre for a year, it's a lot harder than it sounds. It's tough. So A for effort? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I'm pretty excited yeah, well, about I got to see what John has. John might have <laughs> worse stuff. I'm not judging this, by the way. Mike is. So. All, right, All right. Let's go over to John Cross for his Hut Products offerings. All right. Here we go. Before Michael Myers, Freddy, Jason, and even Godzilla, there were the Universal Monsters. And toy company Remco in 1980 released the Universal Monster Dolls and... The Monsterizer. That's right. All your favorite Universal Monster movie characters, Dracula, Frankenstein's Monster, Wolfman, The Mummy, etc., all came out in 1980 from Remco. Now, these were not the first time. This was not the first time that Remco, uh, in fact, their parent company, um, had produced action figures based on the Universal Monsters license. However, the parent company, AHI, who had done them in 1973 to 1976, had done a very kind of dime store cheap version of them, whereas these editions of the Universal Monster dolls were far more deluxe. They were nine-inch figures that were sculpted uh, by a uh, Ken Scheller, um, who had also done work for Mego. Um, and the monsters had accordion arms and could crush their victims. Uh, and the Monsterizer was a recreation of the Frankenstein lab table um, and apparently is very difficult to find today. Uh, Remco then followed it up in 1981 with a series of three three-quarter-inch monsters uh, and two new nine-inch creatures, the Phantom and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. But the original series... Uh, was released in 1980. Um, they sell for high hundreds on eBay today. Some some of the pieces are very rare indeed. Um, and this was probably the first occasion 
when uh, monster movie characters had been released to any kind of either playability or collectability. They, these were sort of some of the earliest forms of like really proper horror movie figures um, with decent likenesses. They did glow-in-the-dark versions of them. They did mini versions some years later. So these were successful enough that for sort of the next four to five years, they did spawn different derivations of these particular um, models. Um, but yeah, this was... Uh, I did. I had not heard of these before I did my research, but very lucky to find that in 1980, Remco had released... Uh, Universal Monsters um, as figures, and I hope I do not need to go into just the importance and pop culture relevance of the Universal Monsters here, because if people don't get that we're still talking about Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, etc. today... In fact, um, Universal have been trying to relaunch their Dark Universe recently. Um, not to much success, but they're trying. Everyone has to have a universe. Um, but yes, uh, these 1980 figures still sought after by collectors. Um, so that is my first choice. Were those, what size were those? Were those uh, two they were and a half, nine three? Inch. Those are nine inch. Yeah. I don't, re- I don't remember those. I remember when they got smaller. Yeah, they, they went down the to a three, three quarter, three, three quarter mini figures. They also did like a, a, a monster house like play set that had the mini figures in and a bu- bunch of different backdrops and things. So this kind of spiraled into other versions of it throughout 81, 82, 83. But the original four or five Universal Monster characters came out in 1980, and it was the first figure of its kind outside of some very cheap versions that were done in sort of 73 and 76. These were, they were marketed to kids? Uh, they were, they were, mar- they were wow. marketed to kids. Yeah. All right. Well, that's different. I mean, now you would see mostly adults with, uh, monster toys, but, but, but yeah, every, they were, there was everyone's a, got them now. Yeah. There was a, there was a commercial for them. There was, uh, uh, they had, like I said, the crushable, uh, accordion arms. So they were designed to be, yes, they were designed to be kind of figures, collect, uh, ultimately collectible figures, but also they were designed to be played with. So they were, they were toys on the toy shop shelves as it were. All right, what else you got? So that's the one that I have all the information on. The other one I hope just speaks for itself. Um, but it's as you know, uh, it's very very difficult to find specific horror movie hot products. It's it's very difficult, especially in 1980 where not a lot of merchandising and stuff is happening. I mean, now you can spit and hit a t-shirt or a or a figure or whatever. So um, what is happening in 1980? Well, we are still. And the burgeoning time of the VHS Betamax Wars and uh, released in 1980, although the movie is from 1975, released in 1980, the hottest VHS and Betamax of its day. It is none other than the original monster movie itself. Jaws gets released on VHS and Betamax uh, on, um, in uh, 1980 uh, from MCA. Um, so I have the, the, the Jaws MCA video cassette that was re- released in the United States in 1980 in a slipcase, um, with its Betamax counterpart back when they were still doing both versions. Um, and I hope I don't have to tell everyone about Jaws, uh, but it's a film from a little known director called Steven Spielberg, starring people you've, you've never heard of, um, and, uh, uh, fighting a shark that in no way got sequels or had pop culture relevance for the next 40 years. <laughs> you know what? I should have pulled a Bill Belichick and deferred the coin toss. <laughs> I, I really think that was a big mistake on my part there. I don't have any figures on how many units of Jaws were sold. I did try and find that out, but I couldn't find that out. But I'm imagining it was uh, pretty I'm sure huge that was, release. yeah, that was probably huge because there weren't that many movies at the, that point, like big movies that came out. There were mostly older movies. Yeah, there, there was about, when I did look up VHS and Betamax releases in 1980, there were only about 15 or so throughout the whole year. And Jaws was the only horror movie released that year on VHS. Yeah, that's a that's solid for your pick. I'm actually surprised that you didn't have anything in 1990. I, that's what I was waiting for. Like, maybe you would have, like, this big horror movie that was released that blew everybody's pants off to rental. But you kind of underwhelmed, in my opinion. What, with the Splat House? 
even if you defer, yeah, because I own Splatterhouse. It's the only <laughs> reason. Pretty much every game that I had for my Turbo Graphic 16, which I actually found, uh-huh. uh, was in my parents' freaking uh, garage just uh, last month, and it was dusty as shit. And I still have all the games for it, so I'm hoping that uh, it still works, and I can throw that in and see how bad it was again. But I remember it being pretty shitty. Well, okay, shitty it may be, but listen, he may bring up the Jaws release in 1980. But does he have a copy of Jaws on VHS? Probably, At least I came close does. with a copy of a magazine, <laughs> and I brought it to the from show. The, from the wrong year. Yeah, it was November 89, horseshoes and hand grenades. <laughs> Cut me a break, some break it. Mike, help me. Yeah, well, it's Mike is doing the judging, so it I don't have a I VHS say. copy of Jaws. I have oh, my put- God, take points away. Thank you. I have a UK DVD version and a, a US Blu-ray, but... Oh, my God. Disqualified. Now, first of all, Dave. Yeah. You're trying to impress the wrong person. Man Crush here is already the champion, and his opinion doesn't count. Mike Ranger over here is our judge. He is sitting quietly contemplating. So let's go over to Mike Ranger for the ruling for round one. Well, I'll tell you, gentlemen, you've, you've certainly given me a, a lot to think about here. I mean, when when I go over to 1990 and I look at... a. Uh, the release of, uh, was this Cracked uh, Magazine does a uh, monster yes, series? Cracked Monster Party. All right. Nobody knows what that is. Um, <laughs> okay. And then, uh, but we've got Splatterhouse on the Turbo Graphics. And the funny thing about that is I remember those comic book ads. And right on. the yeah. Turbo Graphics to me was always this thing that you always like knew somebody that knew somebody that had one, but I never actually saw one. And uh, I didn't ever, I never actually got to play it until they did release it um, on the virtual console on the Wii in like 2007, 2008. But that's, that's pretty cool. I like that. All right. So now we go over to 1980 and we've got the Universal Monster, Monster Dolls. And I actually, I see those sometimes. They're like flea markets. So that's pretty cool. But then you've got Jaws, uh, the 1980 VHS. And was it VHS and Betamax or was it just Betamax? VHS and Betamax both right. released the same same time, same year from MCA Video Cassette. I'm one of those people that uh, whose parents decided to go with Betamax. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, my parents. They, too. they yeah, made yeah, that yeah. mistake. My you know my dad saw a sale, didn't realize that we were on clearance. Um, yeah. So I had I had like four movies. It was it was Jaws, Ghostbusters, uh, Trading Places, and Space Raiders of all of all things. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna go. I think 1980 takes this one. Just that the Jaws release alone is a big deal. And as cool as Splatterhouse is, like barely anybody in America own a Turbo Graphics, except for Man Crush. Yeah. But I do have Jaws released 1980 from MCA. All right. Next time you're at the flea market, go look for a copy of Cracked Monster Party, okay, buddy? <laughs> and you come back to me after you read one. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll get one from 1990 and mail it to you. <laughs> sounds great all right john cross you have the lead and control of the board where are we going next so let us go to what i think is probably my weakest one because it's another one pointer so let's stick with the weak well actually i have two pretty weak ones um we got two more rounds right At, at one at one point each right so let's go with music because this is probably the hardest for 1980, considering the soundtrack boom was not quite where it was, even by 1990 standard, and certainly not where it is today, um, with multiple vinyl releases of different soundtracks coming out. But if we're, if we're going to be horror movie specific, it needs to be a soundtrack, I guess, and it needs to have been released uh, in, in 1980. So I'm ready to go if everyone's happy for me to do music. Go for it. All right. Well, um, as I said, it's most likely going to be soundtracks. I could have gone um, the other tangent. It's not quite horror movies, but I could have gone David Bowie's horror titled uh, album, Scary Monsters, Super Creeps, or indeed the truly horrible album After Dark by Andy Gibb. But uh, horror movies <laughs> wise, uh, you, you get the release of four very notable horror movie soundtracks in 1980 on vinyl. You get the Shining soundtrack, you get the Dress to Kill soundtrack, and the two that I've picked, which is the soundtrack to Inferno, the Daro Argento, Argento movie, and the Island soundtrack. Only kidding! 
Uh, no one's heard of those. I'm picking the Shining soundtrack and the Dress to Kill soundtrack. <laughs> Uh, mainly because despite Argento films being very well known for their soundtracks, um, the Inferno was not done by Goblin, which was their usual um, soundtrack uh, person. And although Ennio Morricone, the very famous Ennio Morricone, did the soundtrack to The Island, nobody has ever seen that movie apart from me. Uh, it features one of Michael Caine's worst performances ever, and that's saying something. Uh, so anyway, let's go over to the two that I have picked. The Shining soundtrack's main themes are by Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki, which is fun to say and spell, considering he doesn't spell it C-H-R-I-S-T-O-F. He spells it, wait for you, wait for this, K-R-Z-Y-S-Z-T-O-F. That's just Krzysztof. And then Penderecki, which is just, as I said, fun to say and spell. Um, it obviously has uh, an incredibly uh, uh, haunting, atmospheric, and sparse uh, feel to the Shining soundtrack. Uh, you could say that the movie itself would be nothing without that soundtrack. And it's very rare, especially back in 1980, for the soundtrack to come out the same year as the movie. Uh, most of the big horror movie releases in 1980 do not get their soundtracks until later in the decade, if at all. As such was the success of the movie The Shining that they did put the soundtrack out on vinyl. Um, and uh, to sort of piggyback onto that, because 1980 also represents the time that more serious directors got into horror and kind of legitimized it. And I will talk more about that uh, at a later date. But uh, Dressed to Kill from Brian De Palma, again, making his name as a sort of Hitchcock ripoff with a slight tangent over to Giallo uh, with a lot of uh, graphic nudity and uh, violence. Nancy Allen looks good, though. Nancy Allen looks great, and you get to see that gingerbird's bush. So, yeah, you know, let's, let's, I forget her name, but it, and it's another Michael Caine movie. Who doesn't love it? <laughs> Where he dresses like a woman. Where he dresses Spoiler. like a woman. Spoiler alert for a movie that's almost 40 years old. Anyway, uh, the Dress to Kill soundtrack comes out. Um, it is by renowned, uh, uh, uh soundtrack artist Pino Donaggio. Uh, who is best known for films like Don't Look Now, Piranha, Taurus Trap, The Howling, Body Double, Two Evil Eyes, Raising Cain, and many, many more. He's worked yeah. with uh, Joe Dante and Brian De Palma a ton. Uh, so I decided to go with those two soundtracks. But if you want like a, a B-tier ones, there's also Inferno and The Island. So not bad for 1980 to have four major horror soundtrack releases. I was quite surprised. Anyway, those are my picks. Yeah, I'm shocked by that too always blows my mind that some of those albums were put out as actual releases. I can't think of one situation where I'd be like, hey, you know what, honey? Let's put on the Shining soundtrack on vinyl. <laughs> right? Right? No, but you look at Mondo and I've, and uh, uh, Horror Wax or whatever that other company is right now, they are putting out all like, you name your favorite movie, Robocop or whatever, um, The Burbs, and they're putting out all those soundtracks on vinyl. And they're collector's editions now in a way where I think people own them to own them. I can't imagine, like you say, people sit down to listen to them. The only dude I know who does is my friend Nick, who's a pianist, and he loves like synth scores and uh, piano bass scores. So he has like all the carpenter stuff. They're just putting them out on vinyl so hip hop artists can sample them now. Right, right, right. Probably, but no, it's a it's a growth industry along with uh, 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 VHS reissues and shit. I actually <laughs> have one of those Mondo uh, records. Really? Yeah, it's uh, right behind me. It's the okay. Halloween one, uh, right behind me. Oh right. yeah, um, nice. Yeah, it was crazy because there was like a limited. Uh, there was going to be a limited edition of them where uh, at random you can get an orange uh, vinyl. Oh yeah, nice. You know, I got it, and I was I wasn't going to open it, but I wanted to know if I got the orange one. I, I didn't. <laughs> so i have the two i have the two john carpenter um themes one and themes to lost themes one and lost themes two and then i have the carpenter anthology which is his new band doing all the old scores and then and i didn't even know they released this but there is a limited edition 
uh, 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 green, like, gloopy vinyl, like, when you pick it up, like, yeah. the, there's liquid inside it, of Escape from L.A., which, if anyone knows Escape from L.A., it has a heavier rock version theme of the Escape from New York theme, which is very iconic, and then he sort of slams it up against kind of goth rock from the early 90s and western themes because there's like a a reprising kind of uh, harmonica western harmonica throughout i actually dig the escape from la soundtrack more than escape from new york in terms of putting it on and listening to it because it's got that rock thump to it so yeah i own a few of those i got the burbs limited edition as well which <laughs> i just i yeah, just you gotta the get burbs. that that's oh, great that's so anyway there, there's my uh picks for music all right, over to Dave Schultz for round two music. Well, let me let me start by saying, and to warn any of the listeners out there, I'm not a horror aficionado. So I was thinking about going the, the soundtrack route, but by doing that, I'd have to listen to, like, endless instrumentals. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. So like John was saying about not going with, like, David Bowie and Scary Monsters, that's kind of the road I went down. So I don't know if that's technically, you know, you know, horror movie theme, but these uh, albums or, or stories rather that I picked definitely have a horror bent to them. If that's cool with everybody hearing those right now. First thing I have is Guar. Everybody know Guar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. M- Mike, do you know Guar? Have you seen that in the flea market? <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have no idea what that is. Get you know out of here. You serious? No, what's Guar? Oh man! Wow! What is it? Go listen to Sadama Gogo. Yeah, Guar is Guar is kind of like the Kiss that actually rocks. If that makes any sense, <laughs> it's like Kiss on steroids. Yeah, it's as if Kiss appeared in Street Trash. That's what it's like. It's kind of uh, yeah. Google that right now. How do you yeah. spell it? G W A R. All right, Guar live from Antarctica was Guar's first commercial video release on Metal Blade Records, uh, claiming that the show was, in fact, live from Antarctica. The box the bo- box art read, For the first time, you can enjoy an actual Guar cannibalistic blood orgy invading the privacy of your own home. Those too timid to attend a Guar show will appreciate that even though most viewers will suffer permanent brain damage, at least they won't get blood all over that, that trendy outfit. Laugh in abject horror as Odorous Urungus, the Sexecutioner, Slymenstra Hyman, and company rape, burn, and pillage their way into your heart. That's a message only Nana could love. Uh, the video featured live cuts of World of Filth, Maggots, I'm in Love with a Dead Dog, which is a crowd pleaser, <laughs> and Sick of You, among others. Live from Antarctica was re-released on DVD in 2002. And for Mike here, uh, Guar was a famous shock art metal band who dressed like mutants and had elaborate stage shows, uh, most famously for putting the uh, people who attend the shows in a giant meat grinder on the stage. And spraying you with blood. That too, amongst other things. Did you look that up, Mike? I did. did I did. I'm, I'm, Are I'm, they scary? I'm, I'm. I'm now scared of all of you for knowing what this is, <laughs> <laughs> Mike. I'll take you one further. I saw them in '94 at the Chance. Were you armed? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually. It was really cool. Like what they do on stage is is pretty nuts. Just like you said with the meat grinder. I don't know if yeah. they had that there because it's a pretty small stage, but they did have like the fake blood, and I remember having the shit all over my clothes. It had to be '94 or '95. That's a good pick, man. That's out of the box, but yeah, it's definitely horror, I would say. No, it's it's interesting. Have you seen them do any of their cover versions on YouTube? They've done yeah. Carry On Wayward Son, Get Into yeah. My Car, and uh, Pet Shop Boys cover. They're really great. Well, this bodes well for me. I'm reading here that they like to mutilate celebrities on stage. Is this true? Whenever they get the chance. Not real no, not real ones. I mean, obviously. I mean, but I mean that would be interesting. Though. Yeah, I mean they've right. done they've done OJ, they've done Paris Hilton, Hillary Clinton. Who hasn't, hasn't. done Paris Hilton? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, looks like they just did uh, Donald Trump. So <laughs> again, yeah. Wow. Well, I was gonna say this bows for, well for me that everybody else knows who Guar is except for the judge. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry, All apologize, right. guys. It's it's pretty sad when the fucking hippie knows who Guar is, but 
I might have missed this, but was that tongue in cheek that they were in Antarctica or no were they tongue in cheek? They weren't really country. in Antarctica. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> that would have been pretty fucking yeah, awesome right. if they, they were been wearing the wrong uh, clothes though for that. They didn't wear a lot of uh, pants, if you know what I mean. <laughs> they okay. just die. All right. Uh, next up, this one is actually a news story about a band who hopefully Mike has heard of called Judas Priest. Um, to which he didn't answer, so I'm going to assume that means no as well. <laughs> Come on, Mike. You got to know who Judas Priest is. Okay. No, I, I've heard of them, too. Uh, in 1990, Judas Priest was involved in a heavily publicized subliminal message trial over the 1985 suicides of two young men in Sparks, Nevada, relating to their cover of the Spooky Tooth song, Better By You, Better By Me, from their 1978 album, Stained Class. 20-year-old James Vance and 18-year-old Ray Belknap got intoxicated before going to a church playground. Belknap placed a 12-gauge shotgun under his chin, firing and dying instantly. Vance did the same, but survived, leaving him severely disfigured. He died three years later after an overdose that was administered in a hospital. Vance's parents and their lawyers alleged a subliminal message of do it had been added to Better By You, Better By Me, inspiring the young men to be suicidal. The 1990 trial lasted three weeks and was watched closely by fans, the music industry, and constitutional lawyers. Later, singer Rob Halford commented including subliminal messages for listeners would be counterproductive. But with the case, even being heard was considered a victory for the plaintiffs. They ultimately lost the case, yet the judge did award 40 grand in sanctions against the band's label, CBS. Wow. So, if people back then really knew what Rob Halford was singing about. Yeah. 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 It wasn't suicide. <laughs> I would I would just be embarrassed uh, enough uh, to be a Judas Priest fan, let alone uh, uh, wanting to commit suicide over them. You should just commit suicide over being a fan, really. Um, Guar was a movie. It was a, it was on video cassette. It was a, a concert film. It has horror themes. That I'll accept in the the horror music. I'm not sure. The second one, but I'll let the, the judges decide. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time, you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. Well, let's see what Judge Mike Ranger has to say. Well, you know what? You like uh it's actually you guys bring up a good point about the Judas Priest thing. And the Guar thing is see that I don't know what it is, but it sounds interesting. And it sounds like I should know what it is. Yeah, you would really be into it. Oh, you'd love it, man. If you watched it. Technically it's a horror movie because it's on it's on video, right? So it was a yeah. video of a live concert and they are a horror themed band. Mm, so right. that technically makes that video a horror movie. So that works very well. Yeah, it's In a fact, good fit. That's a clever one. I But the Judas Priest thing was a band accused of a horrific act. Right. <laughs> I'm I, hey, I'm I'm grasping at straws here, buddy. Now if those right. guys taped yeah. themselves shooting themselves, that would have worked. <laughs> Yeah. He did. <laughs> and Judas Priest do make horrible music, but... Right. Assless chaps. I'm down for any band with assless chaps. I'm pretty sure Rob Halford wears assless chaps. Those are scary enough. And they've been on film. It's all about what Mike says. Yeah, what does Mike, Mike come say? on. Well, Help a brother out. You know, I, I don't think, like, obviously, like, Dress to Kill, is, it's, it's a cool movie. The soundtrack's great. I, I, don't, I don't know how many people were running out to purchase that. Uh, now the Shining soundtrack. I mean, every time me and my wife vacation in the Poconos, we're throwing that on. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't your child conceived to that soundtrack? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, apparently, I was listening to Guar. I just didn't know it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Mike, I will say something on the Shining. I could have outside of hot products. When you look up 1980 and you look up horror movies, I, The Shining was so ever present, I could have basically picked it for almost every single category because there were news stories written about it. Yeah. There was, you know, there was a soundtrack came out, the movie came out. Like I say, it legitimized horror. So that's kind of yeah. why, I mean, the Dress to Kill soundtrack is more that 
of all the movies that came out, those were the two that were most prestigious and that the composer is a renowned like horror movie composer. No, he I mean, I get it. One it's, it's, that was, that and, was my rationale. No, yeah, it's, um, I mean, but at least, uh, you know what? I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to 1980 just because they had two legitimate picks. <laughs> and you had uh, an illegitimate pick. Just like me. Story of my life. It's all right, man. You got uh, you still got one one point round and two two point rounds. So a lot could turn. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little pep talk. Uh, uh, you know, the the 90s never wins. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have to I have to say that, like, the, the hot product thing really surprised me when I was doing my research today. I did not expect to find anything in 1980 for hot products. Um and uh, I'm I'm gonna pick for the next round the weakest I think of of all of the things that I have. So um, go for it. What it's is TV it? horror themed oh. TV is not a big thing in the 80s. <laughs> so this is my weakest weakest round. Uh, are you happy, Dave, to go with TV no. next? No, I'm not because I want my two points off of TV because that was one that's actually oh. pretty good in 1990. <laughs> Well, then I'm definitely picking TV. I, well, you already <laughs> did pick TV, and you already threw an objection at the judge. You're reading your notes. You might as well just pull my pants down right now and have your way with me for crying out loud. No, 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 no. no. Don't right. do that. No, I got my assless video. chaps like Rob Halford right here. <laughs> in, which, in which case, I'm happy to do news if if uh, you think the TV might win you the day. No, no. I, no, you pick what you want. All's fair <laughs> in love and dueling decades. <laughs> Okay, so I have two uh, things for TV. One is uh, the British TV show Hammer House of Horror, uh, which the studio that everyone knows Hammer Horror or should know Hammer Horror, they were a huge British and international uh, uh, filmmaking uh, production house all through the the 60s and the 70s. And then in 1980, created um, an anthology series um, that was also put out by Cinema Arts International and ITC Entertainment um, in both America and the UK, consisting of 13 51-minute episodes. Each self-contained episode features like different kinds of horror. So uh, they have witches and werewolves and devil worship and voodoo and various different things. Uh, a lot of the films feature um, what kind of made... Hammer Horror uh, famous in the first place, which was kind of the British character actors, people like uh, Peter Cushing and Denham Elliott uh, and people like that. But it is the Hammer uh, anthology TV series created by Hammer Films, famous for their gory color British renditions of Dracula, The Mummy, The Wolfman, and they made a TV series in 1980. Only ran for one series, um, but uh, it's still popular today. It's been released multiple times on DVD um, and uh, is is something of a collector's item for people who are Hammer Horror films uh, fans, Hammer Horror fans. So that's the first one. Um, and the second one is the TV movie from 1980, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, uh, featuring oh, everyone's favorite internet meme these days, Jeff Goldblum. Um, it was not his uh, debut role, as he had debuted in movies uh, back in the 70s, but uh, it was a, uh American TV movie version of the famous story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow because of the changes that they made in the show, uh, especially with the end ending it very much influences tim burton's version of the storytelling later on uh, it features other uh horror um icons as meg foster um and uh executive producer charles sellier was actually nominated nominated for an emmy award for his work on the movie um and that's about all i know about that um, but it was apparently very popular and people liked it and it's horror themed and it was on TV. So that's it. <laughs> that one's a solid pick in my book. All right. Over to Dave Schultz, our enhancement talent for the week with his picks for TV. All right. TV. I think uh, I think I got this one in the bag because I'm going to say one word to you and I think everybody's going to know it. In uh, 1990. It was a two-night premiere on ABC for a little uh, movie called It. Oh, man. Now, this was based on the Stephen King novel. Nice. The, the two-night premiere brought in over 30 million viewers. 
It was starring Tim Curry as the demonic clown Pennywise, who garnered a lot of praise from critics for his uber-creepy performance, even though they said the movie itself wasn't all that hot. The cast also included Richard Thomas, John Ritter, Harry Anderson, and Tim Reed. And I think the most important thing to come out of this film is that it scarred kids like me, and like you, hopefully, for a lifetime. So that's the first one I have, is It. And it's better than the movie, I think. I haven't seen the movie, but I I mean, once you see the TV show, you're too freaked out by clowns who wants to go see the film. I think they try to make Pennywise too over the top in the movie where Tim Curry was just a creep. Yeah. yeah. You know, the whole the whole point is it. you don't need to be, you know, have big jagged teeth and crazy hair and be going you don't need to be doing that to make it scary. The move the move that, that fucking dance in the movie was stupid as shit. The movie was piss and I've no interest in the sequel whatsoever. <laughs> I will agree that the original miniseries has some major problems, especially uh in the second half, but you can say that about all Stephen King things. They all fall apart in the third act. Um, but it has a classic TV cast and it literally scarred everyone yeah. around the world for generations. It fucked you up. Yeah, it did. You've won this what's, round. What's your second pick? I don't even know if it matters in my book. Well, the but. thing was, I had extra points for this one too, but yeah, like it's going to matter because I don't think Mike knows who the hell it is. Mike, are you there? Are you still awake? Yeah. Am I, am I keeping you, am I keeping you up and at him there? <laughs> He's making notes, man. He's, yeah. he's listening. Yeah, fuck Dave. Dave sucks. That's what he's writing down on that piece of paper. Uh-oh. No, I'm, Uh-oh. I'm just kidding. This one, my next one, um, I'm actually wearing the T-shirt for House of Secrets number 92, which happened to be the first appearance of a character known as Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah. Based on the DC Comics property created by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, Swamp Thing debuted July 27th, 1990 on the USA Network, running for three seasons and 72 episodes. Starring Dick Durek as Swamp Thing, he also appeared in both films, and Mark Lindsay Chapman as the evil Anton Arcane. The series was about the adventures of the muck-encrusted mockery of a man, once known as Alec Holland, defending the Louisiana swamps and the citizens of Homa from all forms of evil. Swamp Thing, despite a lack of critical acclaim, was the USA Network's top-rated show for a period of time. Also, while not loyal to the source material from the comics, The series played out like an anthology, with plenty of episodes focusing on ghosts, creepy crawlies, and things that go bump in the night. Swamp Thing airs to this day in syndication, and the DC Universe streaming service is launching a new show later this month, further solidifying Swampy's popularity. And again, I'm wearing the t-shirt. Extra points, please. Now, we know all great DC characters had a Marvel counterpart. Do you, do you know who the don't, Marvel counterpart is to Swamp don't, Thing? Don't get me started, Mark. Mark, I don't want to talk about Man Thing. I only want to talk about Swamp Thing. Yes, <laughs> but it leads us to the greatest comic book title of all time, Giant-Sized Man Thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's only great to you, Mark, because of your, your interests. You know, if I had a copy of that magazine, at uh-huh. least I'd have a giant-sized man thing. <laughs> Starring Rob Halford. <laughs> Starring Rob Halford. <laughs> now I'd buy it. That'd be a top seller for me. Yeah. Uh, this chap. Sorry, right, Mike, what do you got? With all due respect to John's picks, which are which are <laughs> which are very, very good. <laughs> I it's got it's gotta go to nineteen ninety. I mean it, of course. I, I, I mean I don't I didn't know a kid growing up that hadn't seen that movie. And didn't yeah. talk about it, or didn't have some type of weird thing with clowns, even if they weren't totally afraid of them. Or didn't want to run a train on Beverly Marsh. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happens in the book, but just not in the made-for-TV movie. Uh, I find I find Obviously. it very odd that, that you went into that right after talking about your man thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, 1990 takes it on that one. No, I, right. I fully expected that. I was surprised to find any 1980 TV horror stuff at all. It was really scraping the barrel, um, you know. And, and also, unless you're unless you're British, I'm not quite sure how much Hammer Horror means around the world in the same way that it does in England. It was one of those things that kind of ran on British TV way more than it did, I think, around the world. So, no, it's still popular here too. I, there's a show you ever heard of Svengooly? Yeah, the airs on MeTV. They play a lot of Hammer films on there too. So I know there's a lot of fans out there of the Hammer stuff. Yeah, I think the problem with Hammer in the US is that it 
throughout the years of them making movies, they are owned in the US by like seven or eight different companies. So you're seeing it now with like the Blu-rays and the DVD versions of the movies. They're being released all over the place. There's not like one studio putting them all out in like a box set or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the UK, they're kind of all owned by the same people, but they had to keep every kind of two or three years doing new deals with different studios. So like Warner's owns them for a while and Paramount has some and, you know, it kind of floats around. Then there's independent companies that then went bust in the UA, US that then like get picked up later on. So it's kind of, it's kind of a hodgepodge over here versus in the uk where it's more all together all right over to dave schultz well i guess uh because it's my choice correct so i can yeah, i can pick can whatever, whatever i want. want i can pick pinatas if i feel like pinatas uh all right movies oh, okay two points right for movies here yes two point round all right the, the first movie i picked wasn't like a personal favorite of mine or anything like that i'm, I'm totally appealing to numbers here because the highest grossing horror movie in the united states in 1990 was joel schumacher's flatliners starring Kiefer sutherland julia roberts and kevin bacon released august 10th 1990 flatliners focused on a group of medical students trying to discover the truth about the afterlife They would end their own lives just to be resuscitated at the last moment, but the more dangerous these experiments get, the more paranormal scenarios surface. With a $26 million budget, the Columbia Columbia Pictures film took the number one slot and raked in $10 million during its opening weekend. Flatliners eventually grossed for $61.5 million stateside, not statewide, there's no such thing, and uh, was nominated... For a uh, sound editing Oscar, the movie received mixed reviews, but was still praised for its abstract nature. A remake was released in 2015. Uh, A little fun fact here. Co-stars Sutherland and Roberts fell for each other while making the film and were engaged to be married. But Julia Roberts killed the romance when she called off the wedding two days before the ceremony in June 1991. And uh, another side note, Michael Douglas was one of the producers of the movie, uh, not the wedding. And that's what I have on that. <laughs> she realized she was a foot taller than Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Go through with it. He's a little man. He, I've never, how tall is he? You know, they bill him online. I think they say like five, nine, which is everybody's five, nine yeah. in Hollywood. If they're mm-hmm. short, I would say he's like five, five. Have you met him? Have you measured him? I, I've I've seen him in person, <laughs> and uh, I've heard stories where uh, Freddie Prinze was on that season of Twenty Four. I guess they didn't get along, and when he was shit talking him, he was talking about how he was like wearing uh, shoes with lifts, and he's a short little angry man, and all this other shit. So yeah, he's a little guy. Well, I'm looking at a photo side by side of Kiefer Sutherland standing with Michael J. Fox. And Kiefer Sutherland has a good two to three inches on him. So he's a giant-sized man thing to Michael J. Fox's swamp thing. I'd rub my two to three inches on Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. All right. Let's see. What's the second pick you got? All right. Uh, Jacob's Ladder, released November 2nd, 1990. Uh, Jacob's Ladder is about a Vietnam vet, Jacob played by Tim Robbins, who returns home only to find himself overcome with flashbacks and hallucinations. As he descends further into madness, Jacob frantically searches for the source of his condition, but the truth proves to be a tough pill to swallow. I'm not spoiling it for anybody, because I actually enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Uh, Jacob's Ladder also stars the red-hot Elizabeth Pena and Danny Aiello. It was directed by Adrian Lin, with a $25 million budget, Unfortunately, the box office barely topped that at $26.1 million. The movie has gained cult classic status over the years, and the title refers to the biblical story of the dream of a meeting place between heaven and earth from Genesis 28.12, also known as Dante's Inferno. Screenwriter Bruce Joel Rubin has stated that he believes the film is a modern interpretation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. A uh, little bonus fact here. It also had Jason Alexander, Lewis Black, and Macaulay Culkin in the film. And plus, I actually really enjoyed this one. This is almost like it, where I was I was too young to be watching it at the time. 
and it royally freaked me out and kind of scarred me for life. But now when I rewatch it as an adult, I, I really thought it was a good, good movie. So it's a horror movie about a mm-hmm. story from the Bible with Macaulay Culkin and Jason Alexander. Uh, I wouldn't sum it up that way. That's why I wrote a whole page on it. But uh, yeah, if that's the way you want to look at it. I mean, it's more about this guy. You think he's tripping balls when he comes back from the war. Have you seen it, Mark? No? No, I've seen pieces of it. I haven't seen the whole thing yet. It's uh, a crazy movie. It is a pretty wild movie, but the, the demons that he sees and, and all the scenarios that happen and the roads that he goes down trying to figure out why he is seeing these things is the first time you watch it is definitely a mind fuck. All right, John Cross, over to you for the movies round. All right, uh, 1980 saw the release of some amazing horror movies. You have uh, Alligator, Anthropomorphagus, The Bogeyman, Cannibal Holocaust, The Changeling, Christmas Evil, City of the Living Dead, Contamination, The Fog, Humanoids from the Deep, Inferno, Macabre, Maniac, Prom Night, Terror Train, and everyone's favorite, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. But two films came out which would arguably make the biggest impact. Um, for number one pick is The Shining. Of course it is. Not since Alfred Hitchcock had a director with the caliber of Stanley Kubrick tackled the horror genre. Starring Jack Nicholson returning to the genre after over a decade since his 60s horror work with Roger Corman. And with the release of this and Dress to Kill by De Palma, as I've said earlier in the episode, there was a lot of talk about how horror had now gone legitimate and mainstream. Um, the film was a huge success, earning $47 million in the United States states alone that's around 181 million dollars today and it was in the top 15 highest grossing movies of 1980 a year which saw the release of huge movies like the empire strikes back airplane smoking the bandit to the blues brothers and more it was also the highest grossing horror movie of that year everyone knows uh the stories behind the making of the shining um but it has one of the most famous uh, uh stories people breaking down due to stress jack nicholson being forced uh fed cheese sandwiches for two weeks just so he could be the uh, requisite amount of crazy i could go on and on and on about this film but i'm going to jump on to my next pick uh, which is a little film I'm sure no one has ever heard of called Friday the 13th, uh, featuring the special effects work of none other than Tom Savini, who even by 1980 was already a horror legend, having worked with George A. Romero and many others on various splatter films. Friday the 13th would go on to spawn 10 sequels, a remake, a million different toys, figures, t-shirts, comic books, and more. It's one of the most popular slashes of all time, next to Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, and in terms of budget versus takings, it's probably the most uh, economically successful movie of 1980 as well, being made uh, for just five hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars in the 1980, which um, uh, it almost made forty million dollars in profit, uh, which in today's terms is around one hundred and twenty five million dollars uh as i said it spawned a whole ton of uh sequels and it was one of those films where you know despite it flagrantly ripping off halloween and other such holiday holiday themed slashes um it did go on to be hugely successful and prove that the slasher genre was here to stay again tons of information about that movie um behind uh, uh behind the scenes and everything but i think it speaks for itself if it doesn't i can certainly go into more details um but my two picks the shining and friday the 13th god that's two episodes in a row now that we covered friday well mine was friday the 13th part two right. but we talked about the franchise uh, it's huge i mean yeah nothing, and it was sort of annoying because i was going through 1980 looking at all the horror movies being like oh my god i love that one. Oh my god i love that one to be alive in a year where and i only read like ones people have heard of but there was like 50 or 60 horror movies came out in 1980 it was like a yeah. boom year for it and yet i had to pick the shining and friday the 13th which Although I'm hugely enthusiastic about both films and I'm a big fan of both films, there are way more interesting and more films that I'm more personally passionate about in 1980. But I had to go with the two big guns, um, The Shining, which uh, stood atop uh, of the most successful horrors of all time until about 1985 when it was kicked off by a bunch of others, and uh, Friday the 13th, which is just a behemoth. In yeah, the yeah. I, I, I didn't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> You had some good stuff there. You had like Nightbreed was in uh, for 1992 that you could have picked. Yeah, there was some sequels. Well, the, the other thing too is 
it was like Misery, and I'm like, well, Misery, I think, was more of a thriller than a horror movie. Yeah. Arachnophobia was another big one, but that, to me, was like more of a comedy than a horror movie. You know what I mean? So I was kind of like, that's why I picked uh, Flatliners, because at least it was the top grossing movie of that year. And Jacob's Ladder was one that I actually saw and, and really liked. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm saying. I, I didn't have the same problem of being like, oh, these movies, I fucking love them. Which one do I pick? <laughs> well, know? I mean, they're both really great picks, Dave. And, and the, but the thing is with the 90s or 1990 in particular, you're at the tail end. So you're getting kind of sequelitis from a lot of the films that were big in the 80s. And you're at the tail end of kind of Hollywood making any horror films. And uh, like you say, they're moving more into what would become the staple of the 90s, which is sort of those thrillers, those like thriller horrors that are kind of on the 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 edge there. And then you don't get another horror boom in the 90s until uh, Scream is released, which I think is right. 94, 95? I think it's 96. Yeah, oh, it's not until 96. 96. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not till the end of the, the 90s. The interesting really thing, horror. though, like if you look at the 10-year the difference from your movies to the 1990 horror movies it's such a difference because in 1990 that's where they start to kind of tail off those pg-13 ratings yeah because they, they're all about making a buck so they want to get everybody in the box office where in 1980 those were some dark bloody you know really racy movies the funny thing is, is i pulled up an article while i was doing this research um about mick garris who was actually employed by and i'm going to forget the name of the production company now but they put out the fog avco embassy he was employed by avco embassy to watch a ton of horror movies that were being made independently and see if avco embassy wanted to put them out and what was interesting about the interview with mick garris from 1980 is that he actually says the opposite of the thinking now the thinking now is make it pg-13 so anyone can go in and anyone can see these horror movies back then the idea was if you had a horror movie that was a pg-13 no one would go to see it because it wasn't horrific enough back then the idea right. was yeah. a horror movie at its base had to be an r preferably an nc-17 the only thing they ever used to do was edit horror movies down to not be an x rating um but outside of that Everyone wanted either R or NC-17 rating. In fact, they wouldn't go see a PG horror. Well, you didn't get NC-17 until 93 or 94. Well, whatever. whatever the, I think it was 90. R to X. Wasn't that 90? It was in 90? I, well, I, oh, I think shit, X, that, X went to like NC-17 or something in 1990. Oh, okay. I, I was Googling around. Yeah. I was looking. I'm like, can I use this? I'm like, well. I'll say that was the split, though. It went from R to X. So, you know, that's a huge disparity. No, Nobody's going to go see an X-rated horror movie. Well. Can I add something real quick here? Yeah, 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 Dave, go ahead. John's a fucking encyclopedia of, of movies. <laughs> and, and like, I knew nothing about horror. I was just picked to be picked because I'm a dude. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there to, to all the listeners and like, hey, cut me some yeah, slack here. I'm, I'm like working against the Encyclopedia Britannica. Except and that I, I didn't fucking... know that NC-17 didn't come into play until much later. But then to be <laughs> fair to me, I grew up in a country which had... Uh, uh, PG 15 and 18 were the ratings. I didn't have American ratings. True that. All right, let's go over to Mike Ranger for the official ruling for the movies round. I mean, there's not a whole lot to think about. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Honestly, the only thing, like, in regards to 1990, I, if it were me, I would have went with a couple other ones just to be fucking silly. What, like Child's Play 2 or well, something? Well, yeah, because you have at least, you know, it's a little bit more fun you know like i didn't want to go with a sequel no i, I mean I didn't want to do that. you had a whole i mean frankenhooker i think is 1990 and you know uh, i mean that would have been it, it wouldn't have won but you know hey no it would have been fun <laughs> to talk can you about mail me a copy of that too please i mean you know you're you gonna got, send me a care package uh, psycho 4 i think comes out in 90 that's fun henry thomas is in that a uh, tremors is in 90 i mean that's a comedy horror but oh but dude, i but I, had... I tell you what i watch tremors like two three times a year Oh, Tremors is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's on yeah, every it's day. It's always on TV. They're still making sequels to it. It's fu I know. I mean, they get worse and worse, but I mean, they just keep staying on those residual boulders. Yeah. The, 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 the original three, though, are still uh, still some classic yeah. films. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely this one has to go to 1980, but you're right, though. It's just like the 90s, is. it's tough for horror after 1988, 89. That's like kind of the very end of it. Yeah, a, a more interesting battle would be 87 and 97, because 87, you're at the 
really at the tail end. There's only really Evil Dead 2 that comes out that's worth a damn. Yeah. You're really at the tail end of a bunch of stuff. But there would still be enough horror movies to kind of pick to make well, it interesting. Well, yeah. But then in 97, the late 90s, you're in that, yeah, you're in the post-screen boom. Of yeah, so you're getting stuff. a bunch of different stuff. I mean, yeah. even then, you're, you're not... I mean, not well, nothing tops The Shining. I mean, that's just <laughs> that's fucking huge. I mean, and then Friday the Thirteenth. It is what it is. It's 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 it could have been Nightmare on Elm Street. It would have been the same fucking thing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I think uh, nineteen eighty uh, on this one. All right. So uh, that's amazing. Thank you. Should we wrap it up with news, guys? Well, I mean, the game is already settled, but maybe Dave can pick up two points. Are you crazy? Here. What are you on drugs? <laughs> no, I'm completely fucked. That's all that's going to happen. But yes, please hit me with the news. I want to hear. Dave, what I you just want to say that I did yes. listen to your podcast selling out in the lead up to this show, and uh, I'm already a big fan and have subscribed. So if that takes the edge off this, I, I hope so. That made my night, to be honest with you. The ass Gen- whooping you, got, you just gave me is all worth it now. And thank you very much. I appreciate Genuinely, it. Genuinely, everyone check out Selling Out. Anyway, um, here we go. Two bits of horror news, and I won't even go into them just to let you know. Um, the first bit of horror news I came over again from the UK, it is that the Troma slasher, again going for the uh, holiday-themed slasher, Mother's Day, is banned in the UK before it can even reach theaters. So everyone knows about the, uh, or should know if you're a horror movie fan, the Video Recordings Act of 1984, which creates the video nasties list and prosecutes a whole ton of titles however even as far back as 1980 and before the british censors are already uh scared and worried about what horror might do to people and because of the violence and graphic uh, uh sexual violence in particular that appears in Troma's uh tongue-in-cheek satire slasher mother's day which is actually made by uncle lloydie's uh brother i think or cousin uh, one of those. Anyway, um, uh, that is banned outright in the UK before it even hits theaters. So that's one bit of news. But the biggest piece of news from 1980 that is horror related is that, uh, arguably Lord of Contemporary movie filmed horror, Alfred Hitchcock passes away in April of 1980. Oh, yeah. Um, it is a, uh, at the, at the uh, age of 80 as well. So, um, he was uh, born in 1900, died in 1980, uh, is famous, obviously, uh, for films such as Psycho, The Birds, Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to say that modern horror would not look and feel the way that it would without Alfred Hitchcock. So his passing was obviously uh, a massive blow and uh, a great sadness to the horror community in 1980. And those are my two horror-related uh, news stories. And that was Charles Kaufman. Charles Kaufman, yes, right. yes, the brother, the brother. All right, Dave, I can't wait to hear this. What do you got for news, man? I will take his Alfred Hitchcock and, and um, say that <laughs> wait, that sounded bad. I will take his Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> and suck it. Yeah, oh, in my assless Rob Halford chaps. No, Raymond St. Jacques, the street preacher from They Live, actually died. And he died on August 27th, 1990. So, yeah, that's all I got to say about that. Um, Anyway. That's a deep Yeah, well, I was going to say, I wrote this whole thing because, again, I was thinking horror in general, not just horror movies, about the Gainesville Ripper. But uh, he just killed a bunch of motherfuckers. uh, End of story. Good night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you very much <laughs> to Mike Ranger for the rule. It's tough. It's a hard one. Just give it to me. Give it to me. Come on. You know you want to. I do want to, man. But you won't. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get. I mean, I I got to give it to 1980. <laughs> yeah, I think I think yeah, definitely 1980. I'm so I'm very sorry. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I told Man Crush, next time, if you guys ever do a comic-themed uh, Dueling Decades, I want to be the judge, or at least have me on. I know that's a shoe win for me, and me and Ma can talk giant size man thing all night long. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, yeah, you and Mark should just get out your giant size man things and compare them. That what the be- hell? Let's do this. <laughs> well, you know what, man? Sometimes, like, it's just, this is just kind of how it works out. You can only do the best you can within your the given time frame. I mean, half the time I come up with absolutely nothing. I had a fucking burrito last week. 
I also I have to say, like yeah. going into 1980, there was some there were some things that I just thought I wasn't going to get that 1990 was going to. Uh, I was actually surprised some of the things I found out, um, and I thought my my picks were uh, potentially weaker. Um, and, <laughs> but and, they weren't. And the thing is, is that that Mike now knows. I mean, I know you've done this before, Mike, but like I'm often sat in that position when I'm judging these shows. Where I really just want to give it to you and Bo because the 90s have got to win something, but the 80s just keep on trucking. I just cannot. Oh, like you did last week where you gave them uh, some Sega thing over fucking yeah. paintball. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait a minute. I mean, paintball. Oh, you know, and now yeah, that we're on the subject, let's talk about. I mean, listen, man, I'm a cult movie fan. If I'm going to pick fucking out of the four movies, I'm leaning to the 80s. But, I mean, outside of maybe, like, uh, the, the the four or five of us here, who's heard of The Burning? Oh, I mean, I think I, it's a I fairly got it in movie. high school. That's about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly no, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, gen- <laughs> oh, general no, audiences right. who's heard of The Burning. Yeah, that, that's yeah. all I'm it saying. It hasn't that, been that, remade that. in the last... 10 years so no one's heard of it all the movies people have heard of these days what were you what were your picks though we we had backdraft and what about bob which definitely appeal to more of a mass audience and mine had the very first friday 13th with jason Voorhees. well actually no he does appear in the first one just you're talking about oh he, but yeah that is the killer and well listen i'm i'm not i'm not knocking it doesn't matter oh, anyway. Ar- we already lost. You're, oh, you're arguing against the win- the last time's pick of of what about Bob versus uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Well, either way, I'll give you that if you give us paintball over some shit. I can't even remember what you said. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. I did not think that the Sega Terra Drive that only sold That's in Japan it. was going to fucking win anything. <laughs> I just tried to spin it like it was this major technological and, and Dave, advancement. This is clearly what they talk about when I'm not here. <laughs> It's cool. You guys talk about fucking burritos, paintball. Why just sit in this pool of my own defeat? It feels great. <laughs> Wonderful. The, well, the big joke is, David, is that outside of movies and a little bit music, I don't really know anything, and I certainly don't know anything about um, like American history, pop culture history in particular. So them having me on as a judge has always seemed to me as a, a particular like joke at my own expense. I think I love it. I I really enjoy it, but uh, half the time, I'm sure people are listening at home being like, you know, no, you fuck? know what the best part of it is. I this is what I take from it. We have to sell you those picks. And I think that goes for any of us if we're the judge. I think in this case, Mike actually, you know, he knew a lot about horror and horror movies. So that's why he's there. But a lot of times when I judged a couple of them, I didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. But they had to tell me these things. So I think it really adds to it because you got to build your case. You can't build your case to somebody that doesn't know anything. That's why last week with the second drive thing, I was like, dude. Really? But <laughs> well, you know what? Honestly, that's the fun part of this, though, is like kind of taking something that maybe because sometimes you don't have anything, and you try to take this tiny little thing and make it seem so much more fantastic than it actually is. I do that every night. Ooh. I mean, with the fucking uh, uh, Brian Austin Green with the rap album was fucking. <laughs> and Sean actually said that was a good album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so John Cross starts off here on Dueling Decades, entering the singles division with a 1-0 and record, and unfortunately, Dave Schultz starts off his career with a defeat. You had to say my full name there so everybody knows I'm a loser. <laughs> nice. But he still wins because he has the Selling Out podcast, which, as I previously said, is very entertaining. Hey, this is the That's best right. praise I've gotten in, in months, <laughs> maybe my whole entire life. Shit, I love it. I'm a winner, after all. If you've missed a previous episode, you can always go back on our website. That's DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe. Also, check out our group over on Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades. You can peek behind the curtain there and join the conversation as well. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media. Infirmary Media.